Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 57. Are you interested in creating video games, but feel limited in what you can accomplish within Python? Is there a platform where you can take advantage of your Python skills and provide the benefits of a dedicated game engine? This week on the show, we have Pavel Burtek. Pavel is a Real Python author and has been creating games as Miskatonic Studio for several years now. He's worked inside of Pygame. And we recently featured his article on creating a clone of Asteroids in a previous episode. After working with Pygame for a while, he also tried a visual novel engine named RenPy and a 3D engine named Panda3D. After struggling with these Python libraries, he started to look for an open source game engine that could help him create the types of games he was striving to create. He found Godot and its Python-like scripting language of GDScript. We talk about his creations, the tools, and how game development is not exactly like most other types of development. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean's app platform. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hi, Pavel. Hi. Welcome to the show. It's so cool to talk to you. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so how long have you been writing for RealPython? Uh, since uh, last year, like more or less this time of year. So I, I guess it would be one, one year of writing, but I only did two articles by far because of the, well, the review process for the first one took a lot and the review process for the second one, because it was my first project-based article, uh, it took even longer. Uh, so I think I think several people t- took also some days off during this review process. So it's it just uh, prolonged the whole thing. But yeah, so uh, by far, I've written two articles for Real Python. It sounds like you've done a lot of talks also going to different community meetings and, and things like that. Is that something you enjoy to do? I do enjoy meeting with with people with uh, other software developers. Uh, yes. And uh, if, if I have something to worth sharing that I always enjoy sharing it. So uh, I try to uh, participate in these meetings whenever I have an opportunity and something that that might actually be worth other people's time. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So this second article that, that we talked about on the show recently about the Asteroids clone created in Pygame, mm-hmm. that started out as part of a, a demonstration for a talk? Uh, yes, yes. Like a couple of years ago, I helped helped with PyLadies Poznań. Poznań is the city that I come from, and that, that's where the PyLadies chapter was located. So I was helping as a mentor, and uh, I wanted to show, because I, I was always interested in game dev, so I wanted to show to the participants how they could start with game dev using Python. So I created this very, very simple clone of Asteroids with graphics made by myself in Blender, I believe, which you can probably tell by looking at the examples, <laughs> yeah. uh, the, 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 the screenshot, sorry. Uh, so uh, the idea was that I think I had three lectures where I could t- 
talk to them and like sh- show them the code so step by step how to change this uh, from a completely empty project to this working example of a game uh, and go through all the the things that pi game well, the most interesting things that pi gaming has to offer so input handling showing uh, images uh, displaying text playing sounds uh, stuff like that uh, and then uh, Recently, after my first article, when I was ready for the second one, I realized that Py, Real Python has this new thing because they are always trying new new stuff. In this case, it was project-based articles, which are not meant to d- dive deeply into explaining the topic, but more like step-by-step how to build the, this thing as, as fast as you can, and then you can explore on your own, which is kind of a nice idea. Yeah, And also, Real Python wanted to have a Pi game article. So I realized that this is basically what, what I did for Pi Ladies back then. So if I could just clean up the code a bit, uh, this could be uh, because of the, I, I was <laughs> a less experienced programmer back then. So I could do it better. And uh, so if I clean this up, I, this, this would be a good uh, topic for this project based article about Pi game. So that's, that's all this, the same graphics basically, other than the background that got updated. The same, uh, oh, the, the code was very similar, but it got cleaned up a bit. But yeah, other than that, this is uh, the same game that you, you can see in, in my slides for, for that Pi Ladies workshop. Yeah, that's cool. What were some of the the more challenging aspects of programming the game? Like, I, I think of some of the geometric kind of like math and, and stuff that you have to kind of think about. I mean, you say that it's mostly a project, but you end up having to kind of explain some of those concepts as you're as you're going through that too. Yes, that's true. Uh, I think like uh, geometry is a bit complicated because uh, I mean something to keep in mind. For example, that. Pi game always starts drawing in a, in a corner of a picture, and then for the purpose of, of this game, I kind of wanted it to be drawn from the center, so I had to apply very simple math to to move the picture a bit, and then Pi game can rotate the picture, but as a result, it returns a new. A picture with transparent background and that new picture if, if you like rotated by 45 degrees the new picture comes wider and higher than the original one because Pygame actually adds space oh it, to, to keep all the pixels from the original there it needs to add space around so then the, the whole thing becomes bigger and then you need to take that into account if you still want to draw in the center so you cannot just use the the radius of the picture but you have to you have to use the new radius, which is calculated from the new picture, uh, rotated one. But that was a bit I bet that that was just a bit problematic and something that that could easily be solved. I think the most problematic thing if in this type of projects, at least for me, is architecture. Like, how do you like you have? Okay, you have a game, cool, but is, is the game should game be the global object or should it be like an instance? Uh, should should you have asteroids? Who is responsible for creating asteroids? Is it the game? Is do you start a game with asteroids? Do you start a game without and then it creates them? And if so, where where are they stored? If you shoot a bullet, okay, the bullet flies and then reaches the asteroid. How do you detect that? Is it, is it bullets' job? Is it asteroids' job? Is it games' job? <laughs> where, where do you put that code? So that that kind of if in Python in Pygame you basically write a Python program with options to handle vectors, graphics, sounds, and so on. So you kind of need to figure out how to do it. The only thing that Pygame requires you to do is like not strictly, but you, you kind of need to do it. Is this game loop where you uh, refresh the screen 
every now and then. So that then in every iteration of the loop, you just you need to apply the logic, you need to move the objects, you need to handle collisions and so on. And how exactly you do it, it's all up to you. Yeah. So that's uh, figuring out how to do it was pro- probably the most difficult part of this. Okay, so the the sort of the architecture that yeah. sort of goes behind everything the the idea of like okay that's interesting because I, I I know that there there are uh, I guess methods that can help with uh, the the sprites that kind of can like okay identify uh, collision but the idea that in general you, you need to there's so many different things that are sort of flying around in that sense that mm-hmm. so what did you end up choosing for like that decision let's say for the 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 space rocks the asteroids themselves like are they deciding if they've been collided with or is the bullet in that case uh in this case i think the game decides so the game keeps an object uh, a list of asteroids a list of bullets and then at every frame it checks that it moves both according to uh, the moving logic is in in asteroids and in bullets, so the the game just calls a method called animate or move, and then you uh, the game itself check, checks if the bullets are collided with asteroids. But for example, you have a spaceship, right? And that spaceship generates bullets. So how does that? So to, in order order to do that, because the list of bullets is kept in the game. So for that reason, I I added a callback to to a spaceship that is basically the append method of the list of bullets. And every time spaceship shoots, it uses a callback, not, not having any idea what exactly the callback does other than it should be used to create a new bullet. And then the game itself provides a proper method as this callback so that the spaceship can add bullets to the list that is held in the game. Yeah, okay. Uh, it's the same goes for asteroids that when they are hit, they need to split into smaller ones. So again, it's an asteroid that kind of generates asteroids, but asteroid does not have uh, a list of asteroids, right? Uh, so in in this case, I, it was either making the list of asteroids global or putting a callback in an asteroid that was used to create smaller ones. In others, this is how it would work in Pygame and Python uh, in in uh, for uh, engines like Godot engine, for example, you would create uh, an instance of a new bullet and just add it to uh, as a sibling of a given one, or you would just append it to the current tree that you have in in the in the scene. So you you kind of have access to global objects, but you don't need to create global objects because a g- game detects which scene are you in, and then you can just uh, add new nodes if you if you uh, add new scenes or nodes if you need to. So that that wouldn't require that, that would work in architectural from an architectural perspective differently than in Pygame, but yeah, having a normal Python project required that kind of approach, I think. I mean, that, 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 that's the one that I've used. I'm sure that it can be done in different ways, too. It's, it's you know, I always talk about, you know, programming is always just really solving problems. In this case, even though that this game that you're you're kind of emulating exists, you still have to, like, think, like, how all those things were created. And one of the things I thought that was always interesting when I talked to John Fincher a year ago uh, about gaming was this idea that, you know, do you think that doing game programming is a good way to learn a language? And I kind of leaned almost toward like the idea of like for Python in in this case, like learning 
really in-depth object-oriented programming. <laughs> Do you agree with that? Oh, you, uh, this was not a question for John Fincher. It was to me this time. I, oh, I gave it to him too. I'm just wondering <laughs> if you, if you, what, what you think um, if, if games programming is a good way to learn programming. From my perspective, by far, game programming is completely different than any other programming. So if you have a Python, uh, for example, a Python web application, that, that it's, it has completely different life cycle, right? Because you can even make it work. It, it basically starts working when you get a request and then stops working when the request is handled. Of course, you can have like queues of tasks running in the background or you have a database connection, stuff like that. And this is... This is one way of how an application can work. If you have a script on uh, on your desktop machine, so something that you brought in Python to as, as a tool, for example, then sure. it always starts with this uh, if name equals main stuff things, and then you, you this is the entry point, and uh, you you do, you put all your logic there, you parse arguments and so on. And again, if this is a command line tool, for example, then it starts whenever you call it, and then basically ends whenever it's done and with games it's uh, difficult because you you have to you have objects that kind of live live their own lives like bullet is is it connected to a gun that sh- shot it is it connected to the environment it flies through is it uh, is there a global list of bullets so th- that's the, one of the problems that i've had uh, many times when when i try to work with normal programming of ob- the uh, languages like c++ or or python and games because games seem to not follow all of the rules that i have learned about those programming languages so Personally, I, I I mean I think, think uh, trying your your skills with game development is a great idea and you should at some point uh, give it a try, but uh, I don't think it's it's that much translatable into uh, the nor- normal languages, normal applications. Uh, I think games are significantly different here. Mm. Just my opinion, though. No, no, it makes sense, and that's kind of I think really leads into part of why I wanted to talk to you a little bit further because you, you started kind of dabbling in games, you know, from what I can tell that you were kind of playing around in Python and, and in Pygame, maybe we could go a step backward a little bit and say, were you dabbling in other languages and in, in playing in trying to develop games using other tools before this? Uh, before that point, before Pygame? Uh, yes, uh, actually. Like to go to the very, very beginning, I tried uh, Visual Basic, I believe. Uh, okay. <laughs> because... Back then, we, we I, I had zero idea about computers and uh, and programming itself. So I just went to the like I was searching in bookstores and uh, yeah. other places for, <laughs> and and the books about programming. And this was the first one that I came that, that, that I could find. Find so this was Visual Basic for children from nine to ninety nine years old or something like that. Some some ridiculous title. And I started uh, coding in Visual Basic. I, I remember the excitement when I saw that if I drag and drop this exit button and then I code it, it quits the program and then I run the program and I click the exit button, it actually quits. Ah, I told the machine what to do and it did that. That was perfect. <laughs> but quickly realized that even two-dimensional games would be very difficult to make with this. Although I did create a Pong game using labels and shape that, that I said, rounded the edges off, and then these were the the ball and two <laughs> two of the uh, nice. players. <laughs> it, it, it worked, yeah. Uh, but yeah, quickly realized this is not what I want. This is not how to make games, right? Yeah. As a side note, I saw this goofy representation of that in some some GUI 
they had created a, a, a snake game. Mm-hmm. I think it was like an iOS thing. And the snake was animated oh, with, with checkboxes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is perfect, it's little sliders. Yes. <laughs> yes. Sorry, it, little, like yes. it was it was really pretty. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. But, but strange. <laughs> so that's kind of that's how, how how it felt trying to make games uh, with visual basic. I quickly realized, nope, this is not the way. <laughs> but yeah. So what did you move to? I moved to Visual C plus uh, plus because my okay. father's friend was. Uh, software developer back then and he had the environment the whole environment on cds and i had to uh, and also with the cds came the book so i i started reading that book and again this was the ui application right so uh not not the stuff that i wanted to do i wanted to, to have like 3d graphics and at some point i got my hands on the OpenGL game programming book oh okay which explained how OpenGL worked but back then i didn't uh, didn't even know what C++ is. So I went through the entire book. I, I knew what I could do after reading this book, but I still had no environment. So when I got this visual C++ thing, and at the end of the book, there was a tutorial of C++ itself, like the, you know, the command line things that you have, you, you, things that you can run from a command line without any UI. And that was it. So that plus some uh, OpenGL imports that together created finally an environment where I could start uh, making 3D stuff. And I, for a very long time, I worked with C++ and OpenGL, just experimenting with different things. Back then, engines were not yet a thing, I believe. So yeah. this was kind of yeah. the, like, they kind of explained that this was used in this game, but it wasn't, yeah, there, there weren't any ready-made solutions yet available. So yeah, then I, I took some, Took, took a bit of a break with game dev when I was in college and uh, but still, still kind of dreamed of it. And then sometime later when I came back to the uh, idea of, of making my own games, I was a Python, a full-time Python developer. And I had this thing that I wanted to do and it, everything in Python because Python was such a great programming language. The language I wanted to use it for absolutely everything. So uh, desktop script, Python, uh, web application, Python, of course. So games, why not Python? And then I started looking for what, what are the Python the Python options for making games. And Pygame was the first one that came up. So yeah, I give it gave it a try. I made a couple of smaller things, but again, I don't think I got to. I'm not even sure at this point if Pygame really supports 3D objects. I know that back then I definitely didn't get to a point where where I could create anything. 3D with with Pygame, so so yes, I, I tried for a very very short time. Renpy quickly realized that this is not the, the Renpy is a framework made in Python that is intended to to be used in visual novel games. But I realized that I don't really want to make visual novels, and this was specifically for that type of games. It, it wasn't really useful for anything else. Yeah, you had mentioned that project to me, and I I, I checked it out a little bit, and I find it intriguing, like that. I had seen something similar in kind of the iOS world, um, this idea of creating, you know, it, it's sort of like an animated novel you mm-hmm. know, with, with sound and, you know, uh, music and all these other kinds of aspects of it. But it truly is an enhanced version of a comic book in, in a sense mm-hmm. or a, vi- a graphic novel or what have you, um, which is neat. And I think you can tell really kind of cool stories with it. Yes, definitely. Um, in fact, there's a, there's some interesting games that kind of almost sort of take on that a little bit and go a little further but i can see how it would be limiting if you're like but i want to 
interact in an environment <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that kind of like is a, a very different set of tools so yeah i, I think that the genre itself is very very fixed like right? yeah, you have these characters and the background and the text underneath so but because of that you could create a really good tool that does exactly this one job because the, the interaction is quite kind of limited so you don't get to you don't have a lot of creative freedom i believe but yeah for that i uh, as far as i could tell for that one job for making visual novels renpai seemed to be a very well made tool like covering almost all of the aspects that you could think of but yeah i, I didn't really uh, work with it other than the quick tutorial uh, and also i think renpai uses pygame itself so it's basically oh, okay. uh, an extension of pygame uh but yeah but then continuing with Python, when I finally wanted to make a, a serious game, I started checking other frameworks and found Panda 3D. It looked promising, but had its own limitations. And I decided that maybe putting everything in scripts, in, in like text files, is a good approach for any other application, but not necessarily for games, where I, could, where I would like to mm. see a preview of my scene and see... Uh, like how materials would look like, how the lights would look like. So I started looking for options that were not necessarily strictly Python related. And that's how I found uh, Godot Engine. Yeah, so it's something that at the very, very end of our conversation that I had with John Fincher, he mentioned it and as something that he was interested in exploring too. And I kind of feel you know, the, the kind of struggle there <laughs> in your journey in the sense that like, I really would like to create something in 3D and and I'd like to create something where maybe I don't have to focus so much on the tooling, if you will, of like, how do I, you know, how how is something going to live in this space and mm -hmm. kind of like managing a bit of the game loop and managing, you know, some of the the aspects of like, okay, the, the objects and things that, that live in this place that you can maybe focus more on I don't know what might be interesting mm -hmm. for a game yes. <laughs> um, developer, <laughs> and, and and as opposed to per se struggling, it, it's almost similar to like I'm going to have this conversation soon with an infrastructure engineer, you know, and the difference between an infrastructure engineer and a data scientist are kind of inverted as far as like what they find interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and I know there's people that find building engines totally interesting, and and that you know, or, or actually building tools for other people. And then for other people that that want to express this sort of creative side, <laughs> maybe they're not super interested in building it all from scratch and they want to get a, a game created a little sooner, <laughs> per se. Is that kind of some of the experience that you had? Uh, well, when I started, I, yeah, I'm you're definitely on point here, yeah. When I started, I, I kind of had this idea that I want to make games, but it seemed so distant that I didn't really focus on what specific game I want to make because I, I've had this, I felt that first I need to learn all this basic stuff, like how to even display a 3D object, how to make it move, how to animate it. Yeah. And back, as I said, back then there were no uh, engines, really pop, like popular engines that you could just download or buy a license to. I mean, if you were a big company, you probably could buy a license to it, but yeah, as a normal indie developer, not really. It, what I realized after some time is that I wasn't really working on a game. I was basically working on an engine for the game using directly OpenGL back then and C++ and, and I think uh, DirectX 
DirectX 9 or something like that, uh, because that's what the, the book was about. So yeah, I was trying to solve the completely the problems that other games would have to solve too. And uh, I didn't even yeah. even have time to ask myself, uh, wh- what kind of game am I trying to make here? Like, it was <laughs> just like, how, how do I remove uh, these this pixels from this bitmap so I uh, achieve this transparent background here? So the, instead of making a complicated object, I make a flat object with a transparent background because it's m- more efficient. And this was a very interesting thing, but at some point I realized I probably just want to make a game, but I haven't really focused on what type of game because I've been trying to solve these problems. And then like the engines became popular and I realized I no longer have to solve these problems. There are ready-made solutions. So b- both topics are definitely super interesting. Like if you, if you work on an engine and you need to optimize everything and you need to handle this low-level APIs, that's, yeah. I, I've been just like, dabbling with, of OpenGL for some like, for for a lot of time, but I not I wouldn't say I, I got into the really advanced stuff because uh, of of how of my learning process looked back then. But uh, if you if you work on an engine and you need to uh, figure out how to now now OpenGL is deprecated, so how to work with Vulkan, for example, and figure out those uh, how to use those APIs to to display nice materials with normal maps and so on that that is definitely a fascinating thing but also like and making games is super fascinating too but also completely different you need to focus on how this storyline is going to work how yeah uh, how, how is, is this game too easy too hard is it too <laughs> short is it too long yeah. uh, or if you or if you want to make it into a business, is it going to sell? How is it going to sell? Am I just making a game that already exists? Am I making a game with uh, ads or whatever? So this is a completely different level of, of uh, challenge, but both are super fascinating. I think it's kind of cool too, like the having, if you will, done the struggle, <laughs> been through that uh, experience, you can appreciate but also it, it has informed you of, you know, kind of what's possible, how that technology is ha- working kind of underneath. This is kind of an analogy, but I, you know, I've worked in the music industry for a long time as a musician. And then I, I kind of pivoted for a while where I was really more the technician and I was like um, setting up people's uh, sound systems and I was helping them find the types of instrument sounds that they needed or wiring up their equipment and, you know, making it possible for them to perform, be it on tour or in a studio and and so forth. Mm -hmm. And it informed a lot for me and, you know, it helped me learn what's going on with that. And, you know, eventually became kind of a a bit of a career path where I was consulting on this kind of stuff. But at the same time, I was always sort of, you know, wanting to be the one making music also <laughs> you know and so uh, eventually it got to this thing where like, okay well you know how how much do i want to spend my creative effort in in helping other people succeed and what's the balance there of, of of doing my own kind of thing and and games have always been intriguing to me and i have enjoyed that rise of sort of the idea of okay these engines things like unity or you know, the, the other big ones that are out there that, that I've seen. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean's App Platform. DigitalOcean's App Platform is a new platform-as-a-service solution to build modern cloud-native apps. With App Platform, you can build, deploy, and scale apps and static websites 
quickly and easily. Simply point to your GitHub repository and let App Platform do all the heavy lifting related to infrastructure. Get started on DigitalOcean's App Platform for free at do.co slash realpython. That's do.co slash realpython. When Godot kind of came along, what were some of the aspects of it that you were excited about and felt that you would be able to take advantage of? Well, when I first encountered Godot, I think it was uh, version 2. And um, I was not that that impressed because uh, I think the tutorial at some was rather simple i mean the tutorials are supposed to be simple but i think this this one was a punk game and uh the collision okay. <laughs> the collisions actually like super super simple and the collisions were i think handled have to be handled manually so at some point the tutorial will show you how to detect if this if, if a ball has uh, has collided with these rectangles and uh at that point, I was like, no, no, th- this is what I expect an engine to do for me. So, no, thank you. Uh, so, uh, and then I really don't remember why I started with, with Godot back then, if it was still version two, like what, what, what did I try to, at what point in my journey I tried to, to use Godot engine? I don't really remember, but my first impression was like, this, this isn't really great. And then when I started working on this first gig, person on the by far game uh, Intrepid, I gave it a try again. And then Godot has already been upgraded to Godot 3. Oh, okay. And the tutorial was, was still as simple as a tutorial, but the game was not Pong. And it was something much, much uh, more interesting. And the engine showed you how like all of m- many of the things it is it, taken care of like uh, on its own without having to code them, which is very nice. And I think the, the, when I start, when I tried to use, when I decided that I should use an engine instead of Python plus a Python module for 3D graphics and sounds and so on, uh, my main concern was, I believe that I would, I, what I wanted to have is this nice editor where I could drag and drop models, rearrange them, because this can be done like by putting uh, coordinates in in scripts, but and then running the program again and again. Uh, but I think I thought that this was going to be wasting my time. So I, I wanted a nice preview of what I'm working on, and I wanted uh, things like, well, for example, playing sounds at given points in 3D space on or triggering stuff. Yeah, uh, or uh, collision zone so that I do not cross through walls, but if I open the door, then I can cross through walls. I wanted all of that to be handled automatically because when I was working with OpenGL, I remember even implementing my own collision systems and like trying to figure out mathematically how to make this work in every possible case and always kind of missing one case. Like this, this will work for axis align objects, which is great. But as soon as I rotate them, it no longer works. So how to, I, and this will work for rotated, but only in one axis. So if I rotate it in two axes, then yeah, it's, it no longer works. So I wanted yeah. that, <laughs> I, that kind of stuff to, because it's very, very reusable from one game to another. So I wanted that kind of stuff to already be done 
in the engine itself. And in that terms, Goto was very much not disappointing. Uh, it, it took care of a lot of uh, logic, like a lot of collision detection, showing models, materials, light sources, uh, playing sounds, animations, and so on. So all the stuff that could be, like, that I would expect would be reusable, would be provided by the engine itself, was already provided by Godot. Nice. Yeah, I think that's even an experience that you had with the Asteroids game in the sense that these objects were round, but you know when you do collisions, very often. Yes. <laughs> also, in, in asteroids, uh, sorry to interrupt. In asteroids, you do not have to, um, you don't have to really handle collisions in terms of uh, you don't need to move the objects whenever they collide. The collision, uh, when it happens, it means that the object is destroyed. So that's the only handling. Uh, you just need to detect that it happened, and then and this is super easy. But handling collisions, like if you have cube and another cube and you push them together then they should not just stop they should slide along one another but which direction they slide to and then like they they reach the corner and they just stop sliding they just because there is nothing to stop the movement so then they continue going (laughs) on their own so yeah that that kind of stuff is very much more difficult to implement so and that's uh, what is already done in yeah no i was thinking about that it's like it's sort of like multiple you know it's just multiply you know, X, Y, N, Z. <laughs> and then you could think about like, okay, like what is the surface these both things are on? Are they in space? So they just sort of do bounce <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> versus like if it is actually has like, you know, like gravity and then, okay, it's on like a metal floor or it's on rocks or whatever. They're all going to behave differently if you want to have any kind of realism. And it's just super complex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cool. When I was looking at Godot, I, I thought, you know, it, it's nice because you you keep kind of the the idea of kind of being able to visualize how things are going to look. The idea that you could create a a, a scene or a level mm-hmm. and and put lights in and and put you know other sort of sources and then your your you know main object sort of characters and being able to see that I, I think is pretty incredible and that happens mainly in i don't know what to call it but you know pretty much like a gui kind of like interface that is yep. part of the language right yes yes definitely you have a, a very nice editor that like the central place is how your game is going to look like and then you have uh, something that in godot we call scene three so there is always one node that is the, the root of the scene and then you can have a, a tree of other nodes and each one of them can do things like showing a 3d model or playing an animation or playing a sound uh, or be a light source and then you have properties of those models so for light source like uh, how what is the range of the slide how how does this light uh, what's the attenuation of the slide so how, how fast it goes out as it reaches the end of this range uh, is does it produce use reflections or not uh, is it actually a negative light source so it absorbs light so some some non not not so realistic but kind of cool things can be really added here uh yeah and uh, a lot of properties are just there available in editor and for everything that is not in editor itself you just add a script and then you edit it in in the same like the same editor but in, in the scripts tab instead of 3d tab or 2d 2d tab yeah, you're kind of becoming a bit of a interior designer. 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I remember like one of the when I started working on Intrepid. You, you know, this uh, there is this animation of graphic designer uh, micromanaging one of the employees and just standing next to them to a laptop and showing like sw- swiping their head left, left now a bit right, a bit now left, left. And so I just yeah, used that to to show how I arrange items in in the interior of the in, in for Intrepid. It's just, just moving the table a bit left, moving the table a bit right. <laughs> yeah, but that, that's, <laughs> that, that's that's like, uh, but, that, but it becomes very easy and very uh, completely not, not programming related, but also very much game dev related. Uh, so you, you, you look at your level and you say, nah, this, this door is, should not be here. It should be there. And you just move it. And this table, if I have it like here, I cannot move between the table and the wall. So I will move it. And uh, this all becomes very, very easy and kind of fun to work with when you have such an editor. Yeah. Instead, if you have like, for example, a bunch of uh, Python scripts that describe the scene like this, this table has coordinates X, Y, Z here. And then you, oh, this is not good. I will change the Y coordinate here. So that's not the same. The, the iteration <laughs> uh, is much faster too. Oh, yes. And be able to go back and forth between the two. Plus, if you're working in the team, which I'm usually not, but if, you, if you're working in a team and uh, you can have people who have no programming experience or no intention to learn programming because they are good at other things, and you can tell them that this is a 3D scene, you, you click this model, drag it here, and then you just put it where it should be. And th- this is just, you know, dragging, dropping stuff and placing them on the screen. So this is not something that you need to know any programming language for, which which also facilitates work on any type of game. Yeah, I think about that. And then where it kind of goes back to your your programming roots, in a sense, is there's a, a whole sort of scripting uh, language um, in Godot, which they call GD script. Can you describe that a bit? Uh, sure. So GDScript is a language that comes built into Godot engine. It's not the only language you can use. You can use, I think, C++ C Sharp also and C++, depending on how you configure the engine. But yeah, you can, or there's also Visual Script, where I believe you put together blocks of logic. But I, being a Python developer, I prefer to use a text form of a script. Sure. It's a language that is very similar to Python. It's basically after going through the tutorial of Godot Engine 3 uh, on this non-Pong game, I've realized that the, the, the syntax is so much similar to Python that I, that I don't think I've ever went to through a documentation uh, page that described the syntax. Uh, just just when I had like some smaller issues that I needed to, uh, smaller differences, for example, with string formatting, I need to go to the documentation and see how, how exactly is that done in, in GDScript because it's done differently than in Python. But yeah, but normal things like loops, uh, arrays, uh, dictionaries, stuff like that, it's all uh, like the indentation that works almost exactly the same. So after you, you go through this, this small differences, you, you can basically most of the time write Python code and it will be correct GDScript uh, code. Nice. So the types of things that are required or needed inside of the scripting part are really the, you know, like the logic of the game. Mm-hmm. What are other types of things that you create in the, the scripting? You mentioned strings and other things like that, but I was just trying to think of like, you know, what are the components that, that get scripted out inside there? 
Uh, so, for example, in well, uh, definitely input handling. But so you in Godot, you can in Godot engine you can create uh, input actions. So that's a very nice layer of abstraction. You can say this action will be called jump, and it will be triggered by a space uh, key or a right mouse button or this button on a, a controller. So stuff like that, and then God, the engine itself will later detect the same action, but what you want to do after this action is detected, that's what, something that you need to script. So do you want to create a new bullet? Do you want to turn on the engine and apply more force to your spaceship? Stuff like that will have to be scripted. And also, for example, handling collisions. If if what only that if the only thing that you want to do with collisions is bounce objects one of another, then Godot will probably do it on its own. You just need to create some nodes that are responsible for physics okay uh, make sure that they are on the same layer so that they detect each other and then start the game but if you want to for example destroy an asteroid when a bullet hits it then you you are going to have to react to to an event that uh, actually it's called signal in godot so godot will detect the collision it will send a signal and your job is to subscribe to the signal and then to connect this signal to to a method and then the method will did it in this case an asteroid that got hit it feels a little bit like programming in a gui framework like PyQt or uh, PySimple gui I, I was actually going through a tutorial that we're going to have on the site soon about PySimple gui mm-hmm. and it was interesting because it, it was similar that you were like sort of flagging sort of things inside your 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 python you know uh application you know that you're writing but you were sort of like you know highlighting these signals for things to happen. It's like, okay, this is named this, and this is going to you know, behave this way and so forth. And it was able to abstract a lot of the work for you, which is really nice. And so you were mainly just making sure logically that, mm-hmm. okay, this happens, then this happens and so forth. Kind of thinking about that, you've created a, a you know a handful of games now. Um, I wanted to think of like maybe a simple one that we could break down. You, you created kind of a bit of an Osmos clone. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but you you have a YouTube channel and you're kind of showing some yes. of the stuff that you created with that. The YouTube channel is, is very much neglected. Yeah, I, I try to... <laughs> That's okay, it happens. ...post stuff regularly on, on Twitter just to, to, you know, share the interesting things I, I managed to achieve. Uh, also, whenever, uh, whenever I reach a level up or I figure out a project that I think could be useful for someone, I put the source code on GitHub so people can also investigate and... You'd prefer them connect there. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, well, uh, I always think that... uh, I mean, I I am a really huge fan of open source, which is also why I like Godot as much. If if I wasn't, I I might have actually started with Unity, but uh, Godot being 100% uh, open source and working out of the box on Linux... uh, which was my only uh, operating system at the time when I when I was working on Intrepid. Yeah, this was a huge advantage of an open source solution. So I try to contribute to the, the the open source community by sharing whatever I come up with. Yeah, YouTube is uh, unfortunate because uh, there you can only put videos. There's uh, from time to time I try to <laughs> upload something, but yeah, uh, mostly it's uh, I'm trying to put on Twitter and GitHub and. Uh, th- the Osmos game. Uh, would you like? Would you have any questions about this? Or yeah, what I was wondering about is like kind of going back to what you're you're talking about. Um, what would be some of the scripting that's in there? If people aren't familiar with Osmos as a as a game, you know, it's kind of a two dimensional game where there's lots of these 
I don't know, circular objects, and then you are this other circular <laughs> object, these little bubbles almost, and you can absorb anything that is sort of smaller than you. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you touch something that's bigger than you, you is it you die right away? I don't know. You you are uh, you are being absorbed by that other thing. Oh, you get absorbed by yeah, them. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> as long as you, as long as both both uh, beings or whatever. It, touch so as soon as as you move away you you stop being absorbed but yeah you can be absorbed to zero in in that case you lose the game uh but if you absorb more than half of the mass on on the screen then you become like the ultimate bubble and uh, then you do it it's very bitcoin like i'm just kidding I think that's how corporations work, right? So you <laughs> <laughs> totally, yeah. I was thinking they're, of the, they're the blockchain be one thing, like <laughs> <laughs> you get fifty-one percent. So <laughs> yes. in that case, it's very, it's very uh, boolean, isn't it? In, in a in a way, would that be part of the logic then that you would write in the GD script? In this game, a lot of logic went to to recreating the behavior of original Osmos game to, in terms of physics so the, the idea is that in order to move around you need to uh, you propel yourself by uh, throwing away pieces of your own mass but that makes you smaller oh uh, okay that does too okay <laughs> yes yeah so so th- uh, i think uh, this algorithm at this point could still be improved but i started with something very simple like you your radius always decreases by this much and you create always a piece of mass that is, has a radius of this so and then you always move away with the like, uh, there's a force applied to you not that you, you i don't need to keep any vector i believe i think this is actually done by godot engine itself so if if you use a special a proper type of physics you just apply a force so this is one impulse of force applied and the, the value was always the same and then i kind of tried to make it more like more to feel more like the original game so the larger you are the bigger pieces of yourself you throw away and the faster you go and uh, yeah when when so that took some uh, time and if if you press your in this case it worked with left mouse button i think if you press a left mouse button you start propelling yourself but if you hold it longer then you start like the the mass you eject is you, you you eject more of it, so that that ha- kind of had to be scripted there. And getting that right took a couple of attempts, and I think at this point it works, but I think it w- could work better. Okay. So to make sure that the mass that I lose is the same the, as the mass that is created as this new new bubble, uh, and also the force applied is uh, more or less proportional to to the size of the bubble. If it's if it's big and I apply very small forces, then it's not going to move at all, like very noticeably. And if it's small and I'm going to apply a large force, then it's going to be moving very, very fast and lose immediately because it's going to crash into something bigger. So that was one of the things that got scripted. And I think the other thing that got scripted is that whenever, well, the handling of collisions. So whenever two two of those round areas collide, I needed to figure out which one is the bigger one and which one is the smaller one and start re- taking away mass from one of them <laughs> and putting more mass to the other one. Yeah. In this particular game, you might also notice that the color changes. Like if, if a bubble is bigger than you, it's 
red. If a bubble is smaller than you, it's blue to indicate that if it's almost the same, it's going to be almost white. So like, if it's just slightly bigger, it's going to be white with a tint of red. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> and, then, and then if it go, go, gets significantly bigger, then it's going to be much, much redder than, the, than it used to be. So that is, so th this was actually done with Signal. So every time my, that the main bubble ejects some mass, you, you send a, it sends a signal that the radius has, or the mass has changed. And then we check uh, every other bubble uh, is connected to the signal and checks if, if now is bigger or it's smaller or it's significantly bigger or significantly smaller and changes, changes the color uh, accordingly. They all have to kind of rate themselves across yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the new status. Okay, cool. Yeah, it's got, it's, it, you know, it's a, it's an interesting set of problems to solve. And you, you think of like, you know, these simple games, you look at, you know, somebody would maybe you look at it for a second and go, oh, okay, that's not too complex. And it's like, well, actually, no, there's a lot going on underneath it that you have to, <laughs> you have to program inside of it. I mean, graphically, there may not be as many, you know, it's not three-dimensional. There's not like yes. you know, spectacular lighting and, and, and so forth, but there's a lot kind of going on inside of that. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. It continues on the theme of the episode, and it could work as a starting point if you're interested in exploring games with Python. It's titled, Make a 2D Side-Scroller Game with Pygame. The course is based on an article by previous guest John Fincher, and in the course, yours truly takes you through how to draw items on your screen, play sound effects and music, handle user input, implement event loops, and describe how game programming differs from standard procedural Python programming. I think programming games is a great way to get familiar with object-oriented programming. And it's a fun way to practice your Python skills. Plus, you get a project that you can share that can be a nice showcase of your work. And like most of the video courses on RealPython, the course is broken into easily consumable sections, and you get code examples for the techniques shown. And now all the courses on RealPython have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes. Or you can find it using the newly enhanced search tool on realpython.com. So think of another game that was Intrepid your your first like big good old game that you did? Uh, yes, yes, it was. It was my first big game at all. So we have the, before before that there was the experiments with OpenGL and C then a break, then some attempts at Python, then I think another break, and then like uh, that real determination to get it right this time and make a game and trying with Py Panda 3D first and then moving to Godot. Did you you try to build something akin to Intrepid in in uh, Pandas 3D? Yeah, that, uh, that was the first. Uh, that was what I started with when I was working on Intrepid. I I, I started checking how to display uh, a model, how to check collisions, how to process input, and so on and so on. And okay, yeah, and that there were some. Where first thing that, that there were some quirks with Panda 3D itself. So, for example, scaling a collision zone would result in collisions not being properly detected. Uh, because it's suddenly oh. like like the precision of the detecting collisions got also scales, and then w there were gaps uh, that you could go through, which was very very unexpected. And I I start, tried to follow the the rule of if if, if something is not working, okay, but if something tells me that it should working and it's not working, uh, 
the way that, that I would expect, then, then, then this is weird. If, if an engine would say that we don't have collision zones, cool, but they had collision zones, but not behaving properly. So that was uh, a, a kind of a warning signal. Uh, but also I realized that uh, something that was already mentioned, that uh, for games working purely with scripts is maybe not the best idea, Maybe it's good to have this uh, 3D preview of a scene. Maybe it's good, it's good to have uh, be, being able to uh, rearrange items without having to run the program again. That that was another reason. That's what I was thinking is the the loop of of going back and forth and iterating on it and, and finding those sort of frustrating glitches <laughs> yeah. between 3D objects and stuff would be very time consuming for something that per se is a hobby um, that you're you know, wanting to, to grow at would, would be a bit frustrating in your own development and, and working. Debugging games is a completely different topic, yes. And <laughs> just as tricky as debugging normal programs, but in 3D. <laughs> now, I mean, there are, in there, there are also in 2D <laughs> games, I believe that's also very, very difficult. But the point is that games have not, not only a lot of complexity because you have models and interactions and input handling and so on. I would say at some points more complexity than normal applications, but also they are completely different than normal applications uh, in the term, in the way that I said before. So the life cycle of a game is completely different than, let's say, life cycle of a Python server application or a Python script on a desktop. Uh, so you, you kind of also have that, you kind of sometimes need to adjust to, to a new way of thinking, which is good in general to, to think in more than one way, but yeah, it makes the debugging even more complicated at times. Yeah, totally. So it um, maybe describe Intrepid for, for people who haven't had a chance to check it out yet. We can kind of go a little bit further into kind of your development of it uh so intrepid is a game that was supposed to be a 3d escape room uh in escape rooms the the idea is that you are locked inside of a well room sometimes several rooms and you have to figure out how to leave before the time that you are given is out and you have to solve puzzles which are usually rather abstract so not not like a normal adventure game puzzles of uh you need to talk with this person and get information out of them but more like you have a padlock and it's, it uses three-digit three, three code, and then you need to find that three-digit code somewhere in, in the room. So that, that kind of uh, ideas were put into Intrepid. It was supposed to be... A, so to, to make it more like a, an actual computer game, I figured out this setup that you are on a spaceship that got damaged and you need to escape. We have like one hour to escape. Oh, sorry. One hour is never mentioned in the game itself. You just have this dangerometer uh, on the screen of the computer and you, you can see that it's going up and up. And, and when it reaches top, you the, the spaceship explodes. And you have to figure out the solutions to those puzzles in that time and uh, unlock the, the escape pod. Yeah, so I was figuring out uh, quite a bit of it. I didn't escape <laughs> but i, I uh, was able to you know find the the three-digit padlock and then there's another one that's like uh mm-hmm. i you know not to spoil anything but i believe it's based on the planets yes and and in this other screen and uh, so i was trying to enter in those codes in another area and then i was like finding little objects and so forth so it was neat um and as a as far as the 3d world goes it you know it has all the lighting that you're talking about, um, you have this sort of pre-animated 
thing where you're kind of waking up out of the the sleep pod. Uh, I, I'm very happy with the time animation. Yeah, this was. Yeah, it looks cool. <laughs> I, I explained to to my 3D artists how I wanted to to make it look, and then they made made it look exactly like I had envisioned this. So I was really really happy. Ah, that's cool. And then it turned out that I can in this this effect of you like losing your your eyes losing focus. That's just done with uh, manipulating a camera in Godot. So I just nice. created a, a random at random intervals the the focus point goes either super close to your eyes or super far away and it gives you this impression that you you just woke up and you don't really see clearly and it was surprisingly easy to achieve that effect and the, but the result was exactly what i wanted so i was very happy with this yeah and i i'm glad that you also liked it yeah i was i was impressed with it the the graphics are neat and that kind of gets into something that i tried to talk to john a little bit about the idea of like if you are not an extremely experienced 3D, I guess artist would be the term, mm-hmm. creating these objects in a, a 3D tool. I know we talked about this before we got started about using Blender as a as one of the tools that's out there. That's it's kind of nice because it's open source that people can kind of play and, and create in. And I think had somebody else talk about Blender, the author of Jupilit had mentioned it also but how did you f- find that person to help you create your assets the 3d stuff uh for the 3d assets themselves it was surprisingly easy i would say um i was checking at, um one of the websites with with 3d models uh, because first thing that i wanted to do is check if godot can handle a 3d scene so i checked uh, so, so i just bought a couple of simple models and put because i didn't know back then how to use blender properly right right it's a whole separate path you have to go down <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly i wanted a model that has some geometry a texture probably multiple textures so like for color for reflections for normal maps and so on uh, and then so i found them on one of the websites i think it was cg trader okay and um, i found more than one model but then like i liked one of them more than the other and then i contacted the person who and who, who put those models up there so i was asking if if they would be willing to make custom models for my game and the guy was like yeah sure no problem so cool uh, yeah that, that was finding that part of like collaboration was very easy no, that's good that's nice to hear I knew that immediately i knew that i'm not going to make them on my own because even though i also like a lot like and i other than game dev i love 3d graphics too but i knew that I, my skills are definitely not good enough for for a full game so i needed someone who, who has more experience yeah and a lot of people want to show off um, their work and maybe they're not super interested in building an entire game themselves so it, it can be mm-hmm. uh, a, a nice kind of win-win <laughs> sort of situation for for people collaborating so we'll have to include links to that cg mm-hmm. site that you mentioned sure cool so you went through the whole idea phase, creating this thing, building it, huh. uh, coming up with all the console uh, concepts and the puzzles for the for the the escape room sort of game, and then you were able to using Godot package this whole thing up and be able to share it on different platforms. You mentioned Linux, mm-hmm. um, but y- you were able to package it up for. Uh, Windows, is that something that Godot helps you with? Oh, yes, yes, a lot. Um, Godot has this thing called export templates. So in like when you open your project, you just go to 
go to a specific option in the menu and then you can download the templates from Godot website. So it's not like a licensed thing. It's just specific for a specific version of Godot. Once you download them, uh, you can pick any of them for your project. And there are templates for uh, Linux, Windows, Mac, Android, uh, HTML, and uh, okay. possibly others too. I'm not sure about iOS. I'm, I think because of how developing apps for iOS works, it might be more difficult. And I was kind of, I never was interested in making games for iOS yet, at least. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but I think there might be an option, but more like this might be more difficult than, for example, with Android or desktop. Yeah, I think you have to t- probably tie in Xcode and... Quite, quite possibly, yes. But very, very possibly you have to do something that is specifically related with Mac accounts or something. Yeah. But yeah, for any other platform, you just download a template, you add it to your project, and then you just double-click, click Export Project, and there it is. You, you get a PCK file, which is like the whole game packed in one file, and then you get an execute for the specific platform. So it's exe for uh, Windows or .86x something like for Windows, for Linux and stuff like that. For Mac, it's, I think that the structure is different because they need to wrap it up in this in this format that, that Mac uses. But yeah, the, the process is the same. Nice. It's very nice. Yeah. So um, after, in that case, you were able to navigate putting it up on the steam store which i guess would be a whole other separate conversation oh yes um, <laughs> <laughs> which we will probably won't dive into here but but that was something you mentioned that that's a whole thing of like you know like you know how do you distribute this thing you know like in the case of godot there's no strings attached as far as royalties as far as using this mm-hmm. this tool and this engine so you know partly why i wanted to talk to you is you know hey i i bet there are other people that get to your point in python and realize that they maybe are a little more interested in scripting the logic as opposed to you know banging their head against you know scripting the 3D world and all those kind of engine kind of elements and so this might be a nice uh, solution that is kind of related in a way which is is really neat I had not heard more about it and it was really fun to see a finished project and and now you've created a kind of another tool the game. Was it, you call it GOAT is the short name for it, <laughs> yeah. and I'm going to get the name wrong, uh, but the, maybe you could describe that briefly. The, the full name is uh, Godot Open Adventure Template. There you go, okay. <laughs> the short one is GOAT. That, that, that was a very um, uh, very precisely planned marketing uh, operation here, to, to call it like that. Yeah. Uh, because I knew that ProProject needs a catchy name and uh, a nice logo that came later. But yeah, uh, they, the first one was <laughs> Open Adventure Template, but I think goats are more cute, are cuter than oats. So yeah, that is, it went, it ended up being a goat. And the history of this project is, well, after releasing Intrepid, I, well, I had to spend some time uh, releasing to other platforms because initially it was just Linux and Windows, then came Mac, then there was some bug fixing, both in the game itself and in the uh, in specific platforms. So like issues that, that would only arise for Windows, for example. Then I, I wanted to make another game and it took about six months to make Intrepid. So I hope to, to like six months later release another game. That didn't happen because I started exploring different ideas for a storyline because I knew that Intrepid, how, 
however nice in terms of graphics and I uh, really like the puzzles. Uh, it had its shortcomings. And one of them is that the game was too um, unintuitive a bit. Like people expected an adventure, an adventure game, not an escape room. And so I wanted to... And another thing was that if you already know how to win winning takes several seconds like you you are supposed to you are not really supposed to play intrepid twice and unless you've lost um but yeah if you won then you the next play will not be play playthrough will not be uh fun at all because you already know what to do i wanted to make something better and and i explored several ideas but i actually set a bar a bit too high for a single person studio so that didn't work and then i tried a bit smaller ideas but still something was wrong and then after a couple of those ideas i realized that i right now i have a couple of uh, a bunch of code that could be used for adventure games in general so i could put it together like ma- make it more reusable and put together uh, a bit of a framework for adventure games so according to the rule that this might be helpful for others uh, so let's put it on github so i i cleaned up the code i made sure that it works i created this small because the framework doesn't make sense if you don't have a game that uses it you gotta have an example <laughs> yeah exactly so i created this two minute adventure that is built into uh, goat it's a part of the repository itself and that's that's how it was created i was able to play through that one uh, on the a web version of it just to, I wanted to see how that worked. Yeah, because uh, it's su- super easy to, to export to to a web version with Godot too. Uh, although some graphical elements might not be working, like the the field of view thing when you open the um, at, uh, the inventory, the background is supposed to become blurred. But on web version, oh. it doesn't because the type of field does not work on web version. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if this is a limitation of of the technology they use for exporting or of the game engine itself. I but yeah, but the engine is growing so fast, I hope that they will get it fixed soon. Yeah, I'm impressed with it. And it was neat that you could play it in, in a browser just to kind of check out what's going on. I was able to mm-hmm. kind of solve the the two-minute adventure, if you will, which is neat. <laughs> and you had added um like s- some additional sound with some some other other collaborators, which was cool. Yeah, I'm I'm thank you. I think it might be a nice addition for someone who wants to kind of build off of Godot, but don't want to have to like maybe start with zero assets. <laughs> Is that kind of part of the idea? I mean, uh, all the assets for Intrepid itself were also released uh, to public domain after the game was done. And the assets I used for a uh, two-minute adventure for Goat come actually from a different project Who uh, and the person who is responsible for the project allowed me to use those assets in my uh, in my pro in my game and in my repository so all of the the people who who worked on the assets are credited in the readme or in documentation yeah uh, but yeah uh, usually uh, w- whatever i come up with uh, on my own uh, and the assets that i might create or i might pay for to those artists that like later give me the the intellectual property rights i later release those things so that people can also work on those although uh, so so they can use those in their projects although it's usually kind of difficult to use anything that wasn't like customly made for your game in your game because even if you find for example two two nice computer consoles then they might use completely different styles and putting them together as long as you're prototyping that's cool that it's very nice to have something that that looks 
better than uh, just a cube that has a uh, that has some real geometry and some uh, materials and reflection and so on. But yeah, if, if you want to, and th- that really helps you kind of get into the idea that hey, you are making a game. That this is not yeah. a cube. This is a computer console. This is not just a flat cube. This is an actual tablet with power button from well, on the back or something like that. So it really, if it looks nice, you will feel better working on it. So that's that's also something a reason why I try to share whatever I have with other people. But uh, if you are later moving from prototyping to actual game, then the reusability of these components really drops because you need to keep the style consistent and you need yeah. all of it to well work together nicely. <laughs> fit together yeah. literally in 3d <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah that makes sense and yeah and, and i mean that's a whole part of that the sort of indie game scene you know g- giving credit of of where you found all these assets there's there's a lot of things that have been released license wise and i mean i guess that's similar to the other areas of development too that you know like if you're gonna reuse things in your code that you need to credit the the sources for those things and definitely applies here too because there's so many mm-hmm. <laughs> tangential uh creative fields that that are involved in it and so yes yeah, that's pretty neat like i'll probably have to have you come back and talk some more like i thought about working in blender and what is involved as far as like features as far as like scripting inside of there using some of your additional programming skills if if that comes into play so i have a couple of weekly questions that i like to ask everybody and the first one is What's something that you're excited about in the world of Python right now? Well, recently I got my hands off a small prototyping board with Circuit Python inside. And so I was, I remember back in college, I, I was trying to get into electronics because that's like another cool thing you can do with programming, make like, make it tell things to physical stuff that like later uh, turns wheels or whatever. So it's just not, not, not everything existing just in a computer, but like uh, actually on your desk and doing stuff. And that back then was super difficult to get into uh, electronic programming because you need, you needed, a, yeah. well, you needed a chip, you needed a programmers, like, I mean, like a device that we would put this chip to so that you can load the program into. Then you needed to put two pins together to put it in the programming mode. Then you needed uh, other tools to export your program into the, like in, in a format that will be recognizable by this microcontroller. And a lot of extra steps for someone who just wanted to, you know, try things out. And with this circuit Python, I plug it in to my computer with a USB. It's shows as a small pen drive and then there is this code.py thing i when i edit it uh, and save it the board the, 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 the prototyping board restarts and immediately starts executing the new uh, source file yeah so cool there's like zero practically zero uh, equipment needed to i mean other than the board itself i need absolutely no other packages no other uh, hardware to start working with it which is really interesting and i have a very simple idea that I would like to make with this. Like, super simple, but I, I would like to, to see it in action to make, and make something useful. And then I hope I will get more ideas in the future. But yeah, this shows potential. Ooh, which one Which one did you get? Which uh, circuit Python device? Uh, I got a Gemma M0 from Adafruit. Nice. Which is, like, I think, uh, the smallest and cheapest one with circuit Python, I believe. And uh, I think the smallest and cheapest one that had. Um, 
LED. So I could actually see some colorful lights as a result of my program because that's nicer than just plugging in other things using pins. <laughs> yeah. There's so many parallels to everything that we, we just talked about <laughs> in the sense of like, you know, it's like what, you know, having to used to have to burn EPROMs and oh, yeah. all that kind of craziness of like how hardware was difficult, especially if you wanted to have programmable hardware and idea of the the loop with something like circuit python that, that you know it's like you could get to see something very quickly and hey my actual hardware is not broken <laughs> <laughs> if you are really serious about it then yep at some point you you will do it anyway but uh, what i really like about this circuit python is that you can start with zero additional stuff that you need like you, you just need this board and you need to know basic python and then you can see it in action you can change the way it's it is the slight flashes you can handle the but one or two buttons that are on on the board and you you just you, you can just plug it in and start working instead of learning for a couple of days how to set up the whole environment but yeah if you if you want to at some point you might get to that that that's all stuff anyway but if you want to just start just see if you you if this is your cup of tea then yeah <laughs> this kind of, i i really like this kind of things that don't force you to learn a lot b- before you even have to start and yeah. godot is kind of like one of them you you, you don't need 1.3 gigabytes environment to install on your laptop and the specific operating system. You just download 80 megabytes of an executable file, double click, and then you are ready to go. Yes, indeed. So I like how, how many, many tools go into this direction of, hey, let's make it really, really easy to start with them. So then that's a very nice trend. Cool. So the other question is, what's something that you want to learn next? I kind of always wanted to, like, in terms of Python, I'm currently a bit too busy to to learn new Python stuff other than, like, trying to, with this circuit board because in game dev, it's, I'm trying to focus on 3D graphics and at work, I'm more caught up with in infrastructure tasks, infrastructure-related tasks. Okay. But in Python itself, I kind of, for a long time, wanted to try OCR. And I think it got, like, the Python modules that make it work got really improved uh, recently. So over over the time since I first heard of them. So I would hope that starting with them would be just as easy as starting with this uh, Python on hardware thing. So I would just (laughs) download something, uh, add one or two configuration line, and then start and and see what's going on. So it's, it's something that kind of always interested me how to make a computer detect that there is a picture and then I compare it with other pictures uh, and but I never really got time to 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 play with this and I hope we we reach the point in python development uh, the python being so so versatile and so so uh, growing language uh, that that at this point it would be very, really easy to start I hope yeah so the, i mean there's a couple layers that you're kind of mentioning there you're you're saying um ocr of like i'm guessing optical character recognition the mm-hmm. pulling text out of uh of something that's scanned or or, or a photograph um, but then you kind of almost are sort of mentioning the the next layer of like a sort of computer vision of detecting things that are inside of images which sounds um i mean related and very interesting too which i that's something i you know i'm into photography and mm-hmm. i had um mike driscoll on to talk about his book i guess he just finished it he has a book about pillow um, the mm-hmm. the Python image library thing, um, which is 
which is fun to talk to him. And th- there's a lot of kind of interesting things in, in there, uh, you know, obviously of like manipulating images, but it's as we discussed this of like a whole separate thing from computer vision, which almost leads to video, you know, the whole idea of like one frame turning into lots. And <laughs> so, well, it was really fun talking to you. Um, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much again for inviting me. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks. And don't forget, you can get started on DigitalOcean's app platform for free at do.co slash realpython. That's spelled do.co slash realpython. I really want to thank Pavel Furtick for coming on the show this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the RealPython podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the RealPython podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.